In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Batman. Aquaman. And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast. For All Mankind is a read-through show covering DC Comics' classic Super Friends series, which ran for 47 issues from 1976 to 1981. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me this episode is my super friend, Martin Gray. Hi, Martin. Hello, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm happy to have you here in the Hall of Justice. Uh, this is your first appearance on the show, so I'm, and I'm always excited to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. It's such a fun show. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we're here to talk about Super Friends number 20, Revenge of the Leafy Monsters by not E. Nelson Birdwell, but by Denny O'Neill, not Ramona Fraden, but Kurt Schaffenberger and Bob Smith. But before we get to uh, talking about this specific issue, Martin, I do want to ask you, did the Super Friends comic ever make its way over to England? It did, yes. I think the first issue I got was like issue seven, something like that. I hadn't seen the TV show at that point because it wasn't it wasn't running. But obviously I was familiar with the characters. And when I initially saw the comic, I thought, well, this looks a bit kiddy at the grand old age of about 11 or something. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I read an issue and was, you know, totally charmed and delighted to see that it was actually in the regular DC universe. And it was just very enjoyable. I read every issue until the end. So did it, I mean, was uh, was that the kind of comic that would be show up regularly or sort of spottily, you know, like every so often you'd see one or were you able to follow it fairly regularly? No one actually showed, showed up every two months on schedule, well, every, every month when it went monthly. So once I'd had that first issue, I was watching out for it and there it was. It was just a treat. All right. Awesome. That's great. Had you seen Ramona Frayne's work before Super Friends? Uh, only in the, uh, the very odd Aquaman reprinting, I'd probably, you know, the Giants and the 100-page Spectaculars. But it was just great to see it cause regularly because it just it was, you know, so open, bright, colourful, full of character. Couldn't not like that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think I've known anybody who has seen Ramona Friends work that doesn't like it. So that's awesome. Okay, so we're going to be talking about issue number 20. But before we do that, we have to thank our sponsor. This episode of For All Mankind is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hard covers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So, Martin, what did you bring? Well, for my in-stock trades pick, I wanted something featuring this issue's guest artists. So I've gone for the hardback Shazam, the world's mightiest mortal volume two, which collects all the new material from the 1970s Captain Marvel comeback series. Well, half of it. Not only does it have lots of art by the incomparable Kurt Scaffenberger, it's got stories by some guy named E. Nelson Bidwell. <laughs> Usual price is $49.99, but with the 42% in-stock trades discount, you can get it for $28.99. I can't because I'm in the UK. 
<laughs> but that's very generous for you to put it out to the rest of us. Uh, isn't it amazing to think that Shazam slash Captain Marvel never showed up in the Super Friends comic? You would think that would be a natural, and yet that's he never it. did. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, even, even though you know, they were on different births back then, Ian Nelson Bidwell could have done somehow. Yeah. Even just bringing in Captain Thunder from the Superman stories. Yeah, it's, it would have been amazing to see. I don't know why they never did that. So that's a great pick. And uh, based on your pick, I decided to go all in on Shazam as well, because, of course, he was a Saturday morning staple along with the Super Friends. So I picked Shazam, the Golden Age of the World's Mightiest Mortal, which is a uh, – this is the soft cover edition. This is a big book designed and written by Chip Kidd, which is all about Shazam as sort of a cultural icon. It had, thanks to photographer Geo Spear, it features uh, all the you know celebration of all the various Shazam bric-a-brac for the last eighty years. Artwork, one of a kind toys. Uh, there was like a membership pin. It's I have the book. It's an absolutely marvelous book. If you have the uh, Batman collected book, which is a, a similar thing of Batman collectibles, this is that, but for Shazam. And uh, I will say there was half the stuff in this book I never knew existed. I did not know that Shazam and the Marvel family extended this far out into merchandising. So not only is it just fun to look at, to look at all this cool stuff, it's very informative because I said there's, there's all sorts of stuff that I was like, I had no idea uh, this, this was ever made. And the soft cover edition obviously is, is a um, updated one in terms of the cover because there's a big sticker talking about the movie. So uh, obviously to cash in uh, on the movie, they, they put this back out. The uh, page count is 246. The normal price is twenty four ninety nine, but in stock trades price is eighteen dollars and seventy four cents. You save twenty five percent. That is a fantastic deal. So you can pick this up, and you can pick up uh, Martin's suggestion over at in stock trade. So for all these and other trade paperback needs, visit instocktrades.com and we thank them for their support. Okay, Martin. As I said, we're going to be talking about Super Friends number twenty, Revenge of the Leafy Monsters. It's by Danny O'Neill. Kurt Schaffenberger and Bob Smith. It was on sale in America, at least February 22nd, 1979. So strap in everybody. Uh, so while in Gotham park, the super friends spot something odd, a tree coming to life and walking like a human, the wonder twins and Robin prepare to engage. But before they do, they hear the word cut yelled out by someone nearby. That person is film director, Frizz Frazzle, who was shooting a movie in Gotham park. And those trees were a special effect a shot now ruined by the young super friend's interference. As Frazzle explains the film he's shooting, he drops some cigarette ash onto some prop bombs, causing a huge plume of smoke to erupt. Superman and Wonder Woman rescue everyone from possible smoke inhalation, spotting an oddly dressed man still overcome by the smoke. The man who still rescues the man, and then the super friends depart. The old man, now fully aware of his surroundings, assumed Frazzle is the one that rescued him, which he takes, Frazzle then takes credit for. The man claims to be Merlin the Magician, and offers Frazzle a reward for rescuing him, a magic lantern. Merlin shows Frazzle the lantern by shining its light on any object Frazzle draws, causing the object to appear for real. Frazzle then grabs the item and takes off. He returns to the set, promptly firing everyone, violating a number of union rules. Back at the Hall of Justice, the trouble alert goes off, showing the super friends that giant rampaging trees, them again, are running amok in downtown Gotham. Superman, Batman, and Robin, and the Wonder Twins all try and stop the trees, but fail to stop their march towards the river, quote, where Aquaman awaits. Aquaman uses his great strength to lift the trees up out of the river, but he is shocked to see they merely suck up all the water and spray it out, depleting the riverbed. On the other side of the river, Wonder Woman uses her magic lasso and all her might to topple one of the trees, but there are too many. The Supervins reunite, and Batman surmises that since the magic lasso was the only thing that even slowed the trees down, they must be dealing with magic. The Super Friends spy Frazzle and helicopter above, 
Superman gives chase, only to be stopped by the magic lantern. The super friends split up again, and Superman and Wonder Woman return with Merlin and Wonder Woman with a copy of the movie script. Frazzle keeps filming his all-too-real cinematic epic, but is shocked to see another set of ambulatory trees marching towards his creations. They smash into one another, and in a panic, Frazzle demands the magic lantern fix it, causing it to vanish. Then the plot is revealed. Zan turned into a mirror and reflected the magic lantern's powers back at it, destroying it. Frazzle screams he is ruined. Merlin apologizes for being so careless with his magic and departs. Superman finishes the lesson he was imparting to the Wonder Twins back at the Hall of Justice, that strength isn't all a hero needs. They need brains, too. All right. Woo. That was a long plot description, but, man, a lot happens in this story. Uh, before we get to the comic in, in question, Martin, I want to ask you, what do you think of the cover? It's just excellent. I mean, obviously, it's like Kurt Scavenberger. And with that, you know, it's got Superman being belted by a tree, Batman and Wonder Woman's trying to swing in to save them, the Wonder Twins caught up in the branches and shouting, Superman and Batman failed to stop those killer trees. Then Wonder Woman is our last hope. And for the second issue in a row, though, it's the big three, no Aquaman and no Robin. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Disappointing. That's the. I like this cover quite a bit. As you say, it's drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger. The, the layout is excellent. The depth of field is great. There's a lot going on. But yeah, demerit for no Aquaman for like the fifth time. Uh, I'm just getting so frustrated that Aquaman keeps getting left out of these covers. I understand. It's a very busy cover. It's telling the plot. It's showing that these trees are so powerful they can take out or uh, at the very least ignore uh, the efforts of Superman and Batman. And Wonder Woman is there to, to maybe stop them. But, you know, I don't know. Couldn't Aquaman be in the background somewhere like on by that car that's being crushed i mean come on kurt what's going on yeah sit on a tree branch i mean i think there's actually too many blurbs and word balloons on there i think you just need the, the, the gotham city invaded by an army of monster trees above the logo then you know shut the wonder twins up for goodness sake um, <laughs> you could have the tree go over the top of the logo because the kids would still recognize it and i think it would just have you know even more impact but I just love that Kurt Scaffenberger signature at the bottom. It's like something from a classic car. It does. Yes, it does look like something you would see, uh, right, on, on, a, on like a Thunderbird or something. It's, it, it's really, it's like slightly cursive, but not quite. It's very stylized. It's, this issue kind of uh, was a bit of a conundrum for me, Martin, I have to admit, because the reason I did this show is because I love the Super Friends. I love the Super Friends comic book. And it's been a real pleasure going through them all reading, rereading stories all over again. You have to give all these stories a, a bit of a grace uh, period, kind of, because, you know, they're the super friends and they're 18 pages long and they're, they're meant for younger readers. And so a lot of the leaps of logic that go on, you have to just go with it. You can't get too bogged down in, you know, the, the details of this or that. This story, though, is the first one written by Denny O'Neill. And this is really the first issue of the super friends that we've gotten that to me doesn't really work. It just doesn't really work. How do you feel about it when you, when you read it? I think it works as a one-off story, probably more in the animated style than in the regular Super Friends style. Because the, the regular Super Friends comic, as we said, is very much set in the DC universe, where this one is pretty much like Denny very much writing a filler. It's entertaining. There's lots going on. He's thought it through. I think it works as much logically as any of them do generally. But even the fact that he's using a pseudonym, it's like he thinks he's slumming it. Yeah. And the part that really threw me was Merlin shows up. Merlin, like the Merlin is just in this story with no real connection to anything. Like he just, 
he's just a guy wandering around the forest and he kind of hands the director this magic lantern because that's the that's the MacGuffin they need to cause all this trouble. And then Merlin just sort of departs. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't know. I mean, again, maybe I'm over I'm overstating it, but I feel like Enos and Bridwell's plots, while outlandish, had some sort of internal logic to them, as fanciful as they were. It just didn't have like things happening because they do. But here, it just when Merlin just again, I can't when it just felt like such a weird thing that in this sort of human story about a movie director who is this big egomaniac and but you know he's a movie director right out of like the 1930s because he's got the jodhpurs <laughs> and the the cigarette holder he's kind of you know uh <laughs> yeah yeah but the 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 introduction of of uh, this magic character who has no connection to the super friends or any of the stories to this point it reminds me a bit of the stories that denny wrote for shazam which I felt like didn't never quite capture the magic of the C.C. Beck stories. It's just like, it, it almost felt like Denny O'Neill was like, oh, this is a kid's comic, so crazy stuff can happen and it doesn't have to have any real logic to it. I don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh on it. That didn't bother you that Merlin is just kind of coming out of nowhere? It didn't really, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't hit me twice. I didn't think about it twice because it's the, it's the DC universe. And I know Superman's <laughs> met Cersei a few times. Sometimes she was satin girl, sometimes she wasn't. But I, good point about this, this, this Shazam stories because he used the pseudonym there as well. And in fact, do you know where that pseudonym comes from? Uh, what was the pseudonym? I forget. Is that was yeah, it the Sergio, it wasn't Sergio O'Shaughnessy because that was the one he used yeah. in Marvel. Yeah. No, what Sergio O'Shaughnessy, he used it in both places. Oh, he did really? Okay. Now, where does that come from? Yeah. Well, I looked up, apparently it's the name of the character in a steamy 1959 short story by Norman Mailer. Really? Yeah, and we know Denny was a literary guy. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, he'd apparently been using the name since his Charlton Comics days. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had no idea that's where it came from. That's really interesting. Okay. Um, so, again, the, the opening, uh, you've got the opening splash page with the giant monster and the Wonder Twins and Robin are getting ready to to chime in here. Um I love, <laughs> I do love the way Kurt Schaffenberger draws. Uh, I, I was mentioning in the uh, the previous issue that he drew where um, I really like the way he draws Robin. I love that after the director yells, cut, cut, cut. And they realize, and Batman's like, I tried to tell you those trees aren't real. And then Frizz Frazzle is getting upset. I love the befuddled look on Robin's face. Uh, he's just <laughs> kind of like, kind of thing. It's, it's, it's full of character. Yeah, I go say, oh, you know, did we goof? But the boy detective trained by the Batman doesn't yeah. recognize movie costume. <laughs> yeah, right. He doesn't realize it's not a real, real tree. So, um, the magic lantern uh, again was that something that like I never quite got a handle on how the magic lantern worked exactly, and that you draw something. <laughs> it was like a, it was like a giant spirograph or something, or not a spirograph, but like you know, like you 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 draw something and you put it in front of the lantern, and then the lantern projects it. And it turns it into a real object. Why that meant Frizz Frazzle thinks he could fire the movie crew and do anything he wanted, I'm not exactly sure. But at the same time, I guess if you've got a magic lantern, you're going to be pretty excited and not really worry about the details. Well, that, that is a bit bonkers. And it, it bothered me that sort of having established the rules as to what he has to do to get the lantern to work, i.e. draw something towards the end of the story. That's just abandoned and just suddenly, you know, things are blasting and things are just happening because he's carrying the magic lantern. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, okay, I don't know. This sounds like you can make an even better movie with your crew, but okay. Um, one of the details I, I did enjoy on page seven, where we're back at the Hall of Justice and we see Superman 
is reprimanding the Wonder Twins for, for stepping in. And he's even like wagging his finger at them. Uh, and they're all, all the, all the super friends are looking kind of serious. Aquaman is there and Batman is frowning, but I love that Robin is not getting reprimanded. It's the Wonder Twins are, which is like Robin goofed just as much as the Wonder Twins. Why does he get away with it? It, absolutely. And then I'd say a panel, just the characterization of Gleek sort of, you know, scratching his head as he's taking the victory. It's just wonderful. I mean, I, I love Scaffenberger. Apart from his Wonder Woman hair, he never seemed to get Wonder Woman's hair probably in the tiara. <laughs> he also draws Batman's ears a little weird. Again, that was something else I mentioned in the previous issue where Batman's ears kind of curve out to the side a little. They're almost like demon horns as opposed no, to the but- straight up things that most other artists draw them as. But don't you just love it on page nine? Page page nine when you, when they're wet and they're all sort of bending down. <laughs> they're flopping down. That's right. <laughs> he looks kind of. He does look kind of pathetic there. He looks like the movie serial Batman with the costume when you put it in sort of a real context. Looks uh, looks ridiculous. I do love the panel, and I will see some of these pages on the website findwaterpodcast.com. The one panel of the Super Friends taking off, and he draws all five of them in one shot. That's a very iconic shot of them all you don't generally see all five of the super friends kind of taking off in one shot because it's hard to you know have the panel with all five but we see them all running out i like that and then the next page where superman is taking on this tree again another detail that i mentioned in the the previous issue that kershaw from burger drew where he really gave superman like a lot of space to to run around in and in on this page eight where he rams a tree with his head and shoulders like he does like almost like a Ross Andrew thing where the angle is very unique. And we almost see Superman like from the, from like kind of his butt almost flying into the tree. Like Schaffenberger is really giving a lot of space to Superman's action, which I like quite a bit. I mean, normally some of these, a lot of the Ramona, Ramona frame panels as great as they are, are tended to be uh, the pages were very dense. She didn't open it up a lot, but Kurt Schaffenberger clearly liked to do that, at least for Superman. He really didn't. I mean, if I'd, you know, by the time I read this as a kid, even then I'd read hundreds of pages of Kurt Scaffenberg and seen his Superman thousands of times. But here, it is so much more open because previously he was drawing him in, you know, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen, which were very, you know, generally very staid sitcom type things without a lot of super action. Whereas here, I mean, it's, it is so, well, literally striking the way he draws Superman. But I'd, I'd also like to commend, you know, the, the way on page 11, the way he draws Aquaman. When Aquaman's, you know, kneeling down, waiting, you know, waiting to see what he can do about the trees. And he just looks absolutely, you know, he's not in an action pose, but he just looks magnificent. He's so so patient, so stately, so regal. Yes, yeah. Oh, I said, I love how he draws. I really do love how he, how he draws Aquaman. He really didn't get it to my memory. He didn't really get a chance to draw Aquaman much outside of these appearances on Super Friends. I don't think he ever touch the strip or in any Aquaman solo adventures in any real way. Um, I do like when he talks about that, you know, he's using his brute strength to rip the trees up because he's underwater. Although it does feature a line of dialogue, but courtesy of Daniel Neal, that really as the Aquaman fan bothers me where after the trees uh, suck out all the water and they shoot it out and then they're, they continue their march. There's a shot of him sitting on a rock looking dejected and he goes out of water. I'm not much stronger than an ordinary man. Oh, come on. <laughs> What are we doing? That's not true. Come on, Danny. What are you doing? Aquaman is, yes, he's stronger in the water, but he's not, he's not an ordinary guy. Come on. What are you, what are you doing? I just, I'm glad they got rid of that in modern Aquaman, you know, unless the last like 20 years or 30 years of Aquaman, but just that panel of him sitting there looking dejected. It's wonderfully drawn by Schaffenberger, but again, as an Aquaman fan, it, it makes me a little sad. 
No, definitely. I mean, I mean, he's still going to be wet there. If, if you know, even if you go with limitation, he's wet. He's going to have some strength, whatever. But he looks like a, a dejected a little merman, you know, <laughs> on his rock. So I like how quickly he gave up. But then, then again, you know, it's like Superman, Batman, and Robin. They also gave up very quickly. And I suppose for the, you know, the plot, the rhythm of the story, just getting into seventeen pages, right? He can do that, but so again, you know, good on Wonder Woman for working out what was going on. Really. <laughs> No point trying super strength. Yeah, I like that detail that she she's the one who fells the tree with the magic lasso. But she they talk about how uh, again and another great detail by Schaffenberger on page uh, thirteen, where after she fells one of the trees and she's kind of hunched over and she says, "But there were there are far too many of them. Uh, I, they'll take uh, they're they're too many and they're too widely scattered. I can't lasso them all." But I love the way he draws her slightly bent over, like. That was a huge effort that she just made. And I thought that was a great detail that, yes, she can do it, but it took a lot out of her. Even Wonder Woman, that's how powerful these trees are. Absolutely, Rob. And on the previous page, when she is lassoing the tree, I just think, you know, hair apart, I think he's drawn a fantastic Diana. There's a, a real sense of the lassoing moving due to the way that he poses her body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why um, in the, the classic DC style guide from the 80s, while the most of the work was by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Uh, yeah, yeah. There were, there were a couple of pages by Schaffenberger and those were the super friends uh, pages. So, I mean, obviously he managed to draw these very, you know, when he draws these characters, they are very, very iconic looking. So then later, uh, as I mentioned, Superman tries to stop Frazzle from the helicopter using the magic lantern. Now, again, did I miss something where he tries to stop, he goes up to the helicopter and Frazzle zaps him with the magic lantern but he just zaps him with it and that somehow stops superman is that because it's magic exactly he's not doing the drawing it's inconsistent yeah (laughs) i was just like wait i mean it's not a laser beam it's just a thing that projects drawings so how did it stop superman but they just i don't know okay because again because it does yeah, well, it's magic, but yeah, it shouldn't have worked at that point. But it gives us that fantastic panel of Superman climbing out of his Superman-shaped hole in the ground. I love that panel so much. I love that Sheriff from Chavenberger bothered to draw that. It's not just Superman laying on the ground. It's like because he's Superman and he weighs you know several hundred pounds or however much Superman is supposed to weigh. I love that he's like a full six feet into the ground. And it is. It's like a uh, Warner Brothers cartoon where it's, it's a Superman-shaped Different. I just think that's a great drawing. <laughs> it was great. Another, another similar, similar Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Sorry, the, the noise came in there. Is on, on page six when he's got uh, Fritz running away, running away with the lantern after he's been given it. And he's so excited. He's, like, he's, he's just off the ground. And it is, it is, it is totally Hanna-Barbera, you know, the, the running sound. Yeah. <laughs> he's got those like jackboots kind of thing and he's clicking his heels. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of details that I have to assume Schaffenberger added that were not in the script from, from O'Neill. And I love all that stuff. It's again, if you're going to not have Ramona Frayden, uh, Schaffenberger is a great, a great sub here. Now, artwork wise though, there's something very interesting. I don't know if you noticed whether you noticed this, Martin on page, um, 15 where Batman on the, it's the last panel on the page where Batman is after he's figured out, Oh, he's like, wait a minute. We can, uh, we have a copy of the script. We can figure this out. And he says, corny, but dangerous. Come on. We've got to get there first. That pose is straight up the Neil Adams pose of Batman, which you saw on like the treasury edition. And you saw on merchandising. Like that is it, it's Schaffenberger is completely lifting the Neil Adams pose of Batman. 
that's totally and I didn't notice that at the time but the second you, you said look at the panel I'm going ah that's right you good spot matey yeah he's having fun there isn't he yeah, this is like that's I mean Schavenberger knew how to drill draw, so why he was lifting a pose from, from Neil Adams, I have no idea. But the minute I saw it, I'm like, wow, that's that's the Neil Adams it's the butt the arm is outstretched. It's the same exact pose. Maybe it was just like a little nod to Neil or something, but it's just very funny to me that in it's the minute I was like, What? I mean the whole story's just infused with such whimsy that maybe by that point in the story, Kurt's just having such fun thought, you know, I'll try a little a little nod there. It could be. Uh, and then on the last page, again, there's another little detail by Schaffenberger. We're really wa- waxing Schaffenberger's car here, but you can't help it. I love that when, uh, you know, uh, Frazzle tries to blast the lantern and on the trees and it bounces back at him and you realize that he's firing into a mirror. He doesn't realize that he is. And it's a mirror created by, by Zan. I love that when Frazzle figures out what's going on, he looks into the mirror and we see inside the mirror and we see kind of a ghostly image of Zan and he's doing like the, the bad thing with his <laughs> with his hands up to his head, like he's making fun of Frazzle, like a kid would. I lo- again, that's another great little detail that he's kind of like going, yeah, yeah, to to this guy. I think that's great. Oh, it's just delightful. I mean, it wasn't often that Zan has that much personality. That's true. Yeah, that's <laughs> really it's really funny. And then at the very end, again, where Superman reimparts the lesson to the Wonder Twins about you need. You need more than brawn. You need brains. He's doing the finger wagging thing again. So it's, and it's, I think if a lot of other artists had drawn it, it would make Superman look very stern. But here, of course, he's just like a friendly dad. He's just like, and you can hear the, like the Ulan Sewell or whoever it was, or Danny Dark, whoever it was that played Superman on the Superman's Girl. You can hear that voice. As I was telling you, kids, strength isn't everything to hear. You can just, you could just hear it with that, yeah. you know, Hanna-Barbera music behind it. And it's, it's really, and of course the Wonder Twins don't mind being schooled by Superman. But again, it's so funny that like Merlin, none of them even question that this is Merlin, the magician. And they just let him wander off. They're like, bye Merlin. They're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if Denny planned to have him pop up again at any point in Shazam or anything like that. Who knows? Yeah, maybe so. It's just very funny that no, nobody really seems to regard this as like a strange turn of events or anything that Merlin, the magician has shown up. We're like, oh, all right. Again, this is the DC universe. Just another day. I've got a question for you as a guy who actually w- was able to watch the cartoons at the time. On page 13, Wonder Woman says after, you know, managing to stop one of the trees, sorry, super friends. Now, in my memory, I don't remember Nelson ever really going with calling the team super friends in the comic. It was generally with the Justice League, weren't they? Yeah, generally, yeah. And in, in the, yeah, you're right. For the most part, they didn't call themselves, I mean, in the cartoon, they would. But in the comic, yeah. yeah, they were mostly the justice. They would refer to themselves as, or not at all. But yeah, you're right. She did. That's that is fairly unusual that they're actually being called the Super Friends in this in this regard. Like they have their own, you know, their own branding, their own trademark, their own, you know, stationery and stuff like that. So, um, like I said, I, I was maybe being a little harsh on the story in the beginning. I, I found that it didn't have the same kind of, to me, as I said, internal logic that Ian e B brought to it. But it is, it, you know, it, it moves by at a brisk clip. It's fun making a movie director kind of the villain. Uh, obviously, for our villain roundup, Frizz Frazzle would not appear in any other comics. This is it for him. He's not, he's not a real super villain. He's just a guy who gets a little ahead of himself and causes some chaos. But he's not like a classic villain. Um, in terms of the best friend, though, uh, who do you think, uh, was there one particular super friend who you think came off the best? I would say, actually, Wonder Woman was pretty great. But in the end, Literally, I would say Zan 
brilliantly enacts Batman's plan. And then, as he pointed out, he utterly mocks Fritz from the mirror and blowing that raspberry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, they all, outside of uh, Aquaman, they all get something kind of big to do. Wonder Woman fells the tree. Batman is the one who figures out that it's magic and, who gets, the, and gets the script. And then, as you say, Zan gets the, the mirror moment. But then Superman gets that whole big page to himself where he's knocking trees over. So I guess I think I'm inclined to give it to Zan as well, just because he it tends to be the super friends who I think are come off the best, but yeah, I do that little bit of character detail is very fun to me of just going him doing, as you say, blowing that, blowing the raspberry. So overall it's a pretty fun story. Now, before we wrap up, I did want to mention a couple things on the letters page. Um, now sometimes uh, I don't bother mentioning what goes on in the letters page. And sometimes I do when there's something notable. So there was a couple of things there. Now, did you, I forget Martin, did you have a chance to look at the, the letters page of this, do you have that access or were you looking at it on I DC did, Universe? My, my comic's back in my dad's house in England, so I was reading this in the hardback version. Okay, got it. Okay, so that doesn't have the letters page, right? Yeah, no, sadly not. That doesn't. Okay, so there's just two things I wanted to mention. First of all, at the bottom of the letters page, it features a house ad for the DC horror titles. <laughs> all new, three chilling comics in one, House of Secrets, Unexpected, and Doorway to Nightmare. I kind of like that they're advertising the horror comic in the super friends, (laughs) which I think is funny. I mean, not the DC horror comics were like, you know, really out there, but this is meant to be the kids comic. And then they're, they're selling you, trying to sell you the horror thing, which I thought was funny. So I was going to say, yeah, it's meant to be the kids comic, but I did a little bit more Googling. Uh, Did you remember Merlin's magic word in this issue? Kazart. Have you ever heard of that before? No, I didn't know. I didn't even, it didn't really register with me. I looked it up. Well, apparently, this is a bit more Denny O'Neill having fun. It was coined by the Gonzo journalism person, Hunter S. Thompson, to mean wow. holy shit. So it's Denny sneaking holy shit into the Super Friends. <laughs> Never did I think that there would be an episode of For All Mankind where we mentioned Norman Mailer and Hunter S. Thompson. That's it. <laughs> and we skipped over the giant beaver. Yeah, we didn't even, we did not even talk about the giant beaver that uh, Jane had turned into. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is one of the uh, letters that gets sent in by a Dave McFadden. He, uh, talks about, uh, the TV show and he says, boy, did you guys blunder? The new toy man is dead. How can he be alive and well on TV? Why is Captain Cold's face blue on TV? How come on TV, Gigana, the female girl? And he goes on and on about the mistakes yeah. that the cartoon makes. And in a fairly honest, uh, answer. And then he also asks about, you know, are uh, Black Vulcan and Samurai and Apache Chief going to show up? So in a fairly honest answer from Nelson Bridwell, he says, uh, well, the three ethnic characters were dreamed up by Hanna-Barbera and we have no plans to use them. And then he goes, actually, Black Vulcan seems a little more than a hyped up version of our own Black Lightning. <laughs> oh, like, nice one, ENB. Burned by ENB. And I'm sure Tony Isabella would agree with you. But I was like, wow, that was really kind of a kind of a, a shot. And then he says, Apache Chief is an Indian version of Colossal Boy, which is, that's a stretch. And then at Samurai, his power seems rather vague, though last season he was turning into anything he said in Japanese. Must make it hard to carry on a conversation in his native language or order in a Japanese restaurant. And then he talks about Hanna-Barbera produces the shows, not DC. Which is, so he's basically like, look, don't talk to us. That's not us at all. So I look, look I love good on the yeah, I love that Ian B was like, oh, come on, Black, Black Vulcan, he's just our Black Lightning. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Did I tell you that Ian B once sent me a postcard? Did he really? 
well, not from holiday, but it was a vacation. No, yeah, because there was a there was a story in the early sixties called the Great DC Contest, and the conceit was it was a competition for the readers, and they actually managed to write a whole story, a Superman story, eight pages or something, in which the word the letters D and C appeared just once, and you had to spot them, and I couldn't spot them as a kid, and I was sure sneak them in into a puff of smoke that looked like D and C. So I wrote when I was a kid about sort of uh, 11 years after the story had appeared because I read it as a back issue. ENB <laughs> uh, was absolutely totally kind enough to write back to me on one of those uh, old bit, D, bits of DC note, note cards, you know, with uh, a red and white, a red, white and black image of the super, of the Justice League reading letters and things. Right. And with at the, the, the totem pole of the heroes on the other side holding the DC bullet and just told me, you know, actually the you know, letters D and C appeared on a certain page, which they were just in the regular script. And that was so kind of him. Yeah. That's extraordinary that he made the effort to do that. That's really great. Do you, do you still have it by any chance? Yes. Again, it's, it's back, it's back in my dad's house, which would be, well, it's technically my house as well, which, uh, <laughs> But, you know, hang on, Dad, I'd rather have my dad around in the house. But, uh, yeah, still around. That's great. That's, I mean, to send that to England was not, a, not, that was not a little effort to do that, too. That's really, that's, made that, that's fantastic. Written, written, you know, signed, written in it, written in ink and everything. Oh, my God. Oh, that is marvelous. That is just marvelous. If you ever get a chance... To find, if you ever find it at, at uh, your slash your dad's house, take a picture of that. I would love to see that. That's really charming. Yeah. That's really, yeah. Oh, man, I remember being a kid. Anytime you got something from DC or Marvel, you know, something from somebody that worked there, oh, my God, it was so exciting, you know, just to just to feel like you were dealing with a real person that actually created these comics that you love. So that's that's really cool. So so that's, again, that is the, uh, <laughs> that is uh, Super Friends, Number 20, uh, The Revenge of the Leafy Monsters. Overall, I think it's one of the weaker issues. I don't know if Denny O'Neill quite had the knack uh, for writing these stories the way ENB did, but he'll write others and we'll see if uh, they improve as they, as they go on. Uh, but overall, it's, that it's still a fun story. It's still Super Friends. It's drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger. So again, it's, it's, it's a fun comic. So Martin, uh, is there anything else you want to say about it before we wrap up here? No, just that I really enjoyed revisiting the story. I hadn't read it since it came out in the 70s. And I was, in my memory, the Sergio Shawnee issues, Shawnee, I can't say it, the Denny issues were so far below the A&B issues. I, wasn't think, I was thinking, oh, gosh, I've got this issue. And then I read it, and I just had such a great time because just the, very, just the Scattenberger art just cheers me up. He's, he's one of my top three DC artists. So just seeing that, I was much better disposed to the comic than I was. I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Well, that's good. By the way, now that you've said it, you said he's part of your top three. Who are your, who are the other two? I would say Kurt one. Okay. And George Perez. Okay. All right. Fair enough. That's <laughs> all. But that's the day. Ask me on another day. It would change maybe, but Kurt Scaffenberg is always there. Oh really? Okay. All right. Yeah, he was. It said I, I as I've been mentioning uh, in other episodes, uh, like he was somebody that I did not really like when I was a kid. I thought it was too simplistic, or too, I don't know, it just didn't appeal to me. And now that I've gotten older, I really like it now. The solidity, the 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 fact that all his characters look, I don't know, just so on model, no matter what angle you're looking at them on, uh, and just the the draftsmanship is just beautiful. It's just really, really beautiful. And also too, 
also too. I can't believe I just said that. Um, you're, you're much more knowledgeable about, about, uh, Kurt's work than, than I, but is it not the case in your opinion that like, it seems like no matter what inker was inking Schaffenberger's work, the work always looked really consistent. Like Bob Smith is inking Schaffenberger here when he normally was inking Roman Afraid, but to me it looks like Kurt Schaffenberger. Like Schaffenberger's pencils must have been really tight to where whoever was inking him couldn't futz with it too much because it to me it always looked incredibly uh, consistent, and you're always able to spot as oh that's Kurt Schaffenberger. Yeah, I mean I, I could see you could get you know Kevin Nolan or Bill Sienkiewicz inking him. It would be the, the <laughs> similar. Although actually, I know, Bill Sienkiewicz, I know he always has a lot of respect for the older guys, so he probably would have left it. Pretty much wrong, but I, you know, absolutely, you know, whether it was Georgiano or Vince Coletta or Bob Smith, Bob, or, you know, Dave Hunt, as you say, always totally Schaffenberger. Yeah, it's it's, it's very very consistent. So yeah, I, I I don't think I've ever seen a page of Schaffenberger pencils, but I'd be fascinated about uh, what how much interpreting he left for the inkers. Of course, Bob Smith was a fantastic inker and. Uh, he was handling Ramona and Ramona had a cartoony style. And so did Schaffenberger. So it's, again, it's, it's a perfect match. So, so, all right, that is going to do it for super friends. Number 20, Martin, thank you so much for stopping by. You know, always, I always enjoy talking to you. It's been an absolute treat as ever, Rob. Oh, thank you. So why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Well, I've got a comics review blog called too dangerous for a girl. If you just Google that, you'll find me whittering away at great length too great length probably but uh i'm on the internet on twitter at at march gray and i pop up hither and yon <laughs> are you heard him everybody so okay i want you to uh, stay tuned i'm going to play some commercial announcements and when i come back i'm going to do listener feedback <laughs> The Batman and Robin Batcoders, walkie-talkies that transmit and receive. Not both batteries not included. But I got the danger signal charge. I got your signal. Let's go. Come on out, Joker. No <laughs> the Batman and Robin Batcoders with fold-up antenna, alarm button, and danger signal by Migo. There's something like 115,000 English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? Two guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires! Aliens! Dinosaurs! Alien dinosaurs! There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird 
For all purposes, yes. So tune in to the Weird Warrior podcast today. Do it. That's an order. Yes, sir. Don't call me sir. I work for a living. But we're not getting paid for this. Damn. Well, I'm Max. And I'm Rich. And we're going to be bringing you the Weird Warriors podcast, where we will promise to make war no more. And we're back with listener feedback, and this is the feedback we got for episode 19 of For All Mankind with my guest, Cindy Franklin. And uh, let's get right to the comments from the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. First up, Gus Casals says, great episode, guys. I have very fond memories of the Super Friends comics, and this podcast has really brought me all back into them. Thanks for those expensive but comprehensive hardcover collections as well. Having lived my whole life outside the U.S., I always looked at the merch with fascination and a little envy since we didn't get any. Of all the things I want to kick myself on the head for not getting in my one time over there as a kid, 1979, aside from every single comic book I could have gotten, a really nice lunchbox would have been a prized possession to this day. Love the picks, And of course, Cindy and Chris are wonderful guests on any show. True enough, Gus. Thank you. Brian Linton says, in the comments for a previous episode, I stated that I'd never read the Super Friends comic series as a kid, but I now realize I was completely wrong. While listening to this episode, I was scrolling through the image gallery and it struck me that the panel of Jaina turning into a remora looked awfully familiar to me. Then I hit page 12, where I could recall, panel by panel, Rhino Jaina facing off against the Menagerie Man and his chariot. So I must have read this comic book at some point in the past, probably multiple times for me to remember those specific panels. Still, I have no idea how or when I read it, because this issue came out seven or eight years before I started buying and reading comics on a regular basis, not to mention a year or so before I could even really read. Looks like I have a keep-me-up-all-night mystery on my hands. On a side note, I do love the science facts that Bridwell sneaked into this story. In particular, I now remember first learning about Remora in this issue and thinking they were quite cool. Who knows? This story may have helped inspire young Brian to become a fishery scientist when he grew up. Thank you for helping me rediscover this long-forgotten corner of childhood memories. You're very welcome, Brian. It's all part of the service. Um, you know, Brian, you have to listen to this and, and respond maybe in the next episode, uh, in this episode's comments. Uh, you know, was maybe a comic book in a any place where, as a kid, you might have been uh, killing time uh, for a little bit. I remember growing up, comics were all over places like that. They're not anymore. But doctor's offices, barbershops, and places like that had piles of comics where, uh, you know, the kind of place where a kid might be and having to kill a little time. So maybe uh, that's where you saw it. So if that might jog your memory, uh, report back. Cellar Dweller says, how does one deal with the summer heat? staying indoors in the AC, and listening to the latest podcast of For All Mankind. It was great to hear Rob, Cindy, and Chris on both segments. Let's start with the issue. I love Cindy's story about sitting at the rack, reading comic books. Once again, Menagerie Man appears, first time since number five. The Super Friends show since, uh, that since that issue, they still have not learned to properly hide themselves. On this matter, they should apparently take lessons from their interns, as Xana Jada concealed themselves much better. Enjoyed seeing the Wonder Twins actually getting trained, as that rarely happened in the cartoon. Regarding the point that Cindy made regarding the twins and their powers, in the comic, they never used the phrase Wonder Twin Powers Activate. It was only in the cartoon. In issue 14 in their origin story, they used Powers Activate, so they started using that phrase before they became known as the Wonder Twins. Regarding the lunchbox, I never noticed the date of production. I often question why the Wonder Twins weren't on it, and now I know it predates them. Now I question why Wendy and Marvin weren't on it, as they were pretty much on everything. There is a mini version of the lunchbox out and a Hallmark ornament as well. It's funny that Kitten got on the lunchbox. She was in two issues and never seen animated. So how did she get, how did she rate getting on the box? As to what Batgirl's doing in her pose, she's about to slap some sense into someone. I have noticed that there is some merchandise that features Green Arrow and Batgirl, which I find odd since Green Arrow was in one episode and Batgirl never appeared. Thanks so much for all the hard work you do to give us these podcasts, Chuck. Thank you very much, Chuck. Glad you appreciate it. 
Uh, Shag, of course, from this very network says, another great episode. Cindy's always fantastic. Like others, I was thinking of the lunchbox replicas during the merch section. I've got both the Christmas ornament on my tree each year and the small replica box on display in my office. Thank you, Shag. Corporal Captain Russell Burbage, uh, borrowing his name from a, uh, another uh, one of my podcasts, says, another great podcast. I always enjoy hearing Cindy, and this time was no exception. Rob, as you may recall, it was I who was the guest who sat in with you to talk about the Menagerie Man's original appearance. So if you're going to get a ringer for the guy's second appearance, I'm glad you got Cindy. Maybe for his last appearance, you can get both of us. Mm, we'll see. The Menagerie Man's debut was Marvin and Wendy's last adventure with the Super Friends before Zane and Jana came along. So I wish Ian B. had done more about that continuity. In fact, besides more commentary on that, I would have liked to have seen how he managed to train the animals and why he quit using the White Dwarf Star. And heck, why he changed his uniform. The best part of the issue was the Aquaman Wonder Twins training sequence. No question. I'm sure Ian B. thought to include the sequence because he knew Aquaman wasn't going to appear much in the actual story. Did you not mention the letters page from this issue because you were both reading the digital or collected version of the story or because there wasn't an interesting letter to talk about? I only ask because next issue in particular, Ian B. talks about the SF show and how it connects to the DCU, which I always found fascinating. As for the merchandise, I stickly remember seeing that lunchbox as a kid and not buying it because it didn't have Aquaman on it. I was literally struck dumb when I saw one of your images of Aquaman clearly swimming along the bottom of it because I absolutely remember him not being on at all. Were we a brown bag family? So maybe I altered my memory to delete Aquaman when his presence just wasn't large enough to warrant me begging my parents to get it for me. Then later, my subconscious chose to overlook this instance of aqua betrayal on my part and instead decided to delete him and this whole incident from my memory. Funny how memory can play tricks on you. Now I need to track one of those down. Uh, regarding your memories, Russell, maybe you need to get Professor Nichols in on that. Uh, regarding the letters pages, uh, no, I have access to the letters pages of, of all the issues of Super Friends. Um, and as you heard in this episode with Martin, I talk about it uh, this time. So basically, I just, you know, if there's a particular, uh, particularly interesting thing in a letter to talk about, I will. If not, I just, I just let it go. So like you said, in this episode, there was a couple things to talk about, so we got into it. Uh, Matt Saroy says, wonderful episode. Cindy, I loved your story about uh, joining your mom at work and being an adorable child, reading comics in the corner of the drugstore. Comics were so magical to me as a kid. I enjoy hearing how fellow fans experienced them as a child. I suspect Jaina had access to bat hairspray and its ability to keep her hair both in place underwater and on land and even in deep space. I also wouldn't be surprised if the Menagerie Man's costume redesign was to further separate him from the Phantom. Oh my God, did that reading his fundamental spot give me flashbacks. The little boy wandering the burnt out inner city wasteland until he stumbles upon the bookmobile. It was a very effective PSA. My childhood superhero lunchbox was the Marvel heroes. I still remember Yellow Jacket being featured among the many heroes. It was my very first encounter with that character. Uh, yeah, Matt, the reading in fundamental spot was huge to me too. And I figured since Cindy um, comes with a background of being a librarian, I thought it was just the... Uh, most appropriate PSA to run in the middle of the show. And yes, I had that Marvel superheroes lunchbox as well. It, I'm sure it wasn't my first appearance with uh, first encounter with the old jacket because I had the comics, but, uh, but yeah, I had that uh, lunchbox as well as uh, another beloved item. Of course, Chris Franklin from our network and from that episode of for all mankind and many episodes of for all mankind says it was nice to hear the other end of the conversation since I was painting our bathroom during Cindy's solo portion of our call. Fun discussion. You two, I had the original issue of this comic, but it got lost in the ways along the way somewhere. However, it was reprinted in the Super Friends special that I won as a prize in one of the post serial DC promotions in the early 80s. That's where Cindy originally read the story from. Oddly enough, 
I also bought comics from Bagley's occasionally, and it was right down the strip from the Hallmark store my mother managed. Mom would often stop in and pick up comics for me, so when Dad and we both passed Cindy by while she was reading in the corner, unaware what fate had in store for us. That's amazing. That's a, <laughs> I'd love that, Chris. Thank you. Ado Boznar says, uh, great to hear, uh, finally hear Cindy as a guest on the show. In fact, I'm wondering what took so long for that to happen. Personally, I think it's resistance by Chris because a, he's a rightfully concerned that she'll steal his thunder and take over his semi-regular appearances on the show. I found the discussion about school lunches, lunchboxes really interesting because it got me to thinking. Firstly, I racked my brains to try to remember which ones I had because I did have a few, even though, as Chris noted, they were quite durable. I know I had an emergency lunchbox because that was my favorite show in kindergarten and first grade, and I know I had one with some kind of Disney theme, but I can't specifically remember which one. And it's really frustrating that I can't remember anything else, especially since I often have almost been photographic memories of certain comics I read only once or twice as a kid. Secondly, I'm curious about how long everyone normally took their lunchboxes to school with them, because I recall that by third, maybe fourth grade at the outside, most of the kids in my class and my school in general stopped using them and started brown bagging their lunches. Lunchboxes seemed to be most popular in the first and second grades and then sort of became uncool after that. Uh, since I was never cool at any iteration uh, of my school years, uh, I probably kept using them all the way through uh, being a senior in high school, Edo, I don't exactly remember. Now, I, I think probably I maybe gave them up third or fourth grade as well. That's probably pretty accurate. Sadly, uh, I, mean, it, it, I was never going to be cool, so it wouldn't have made a difference. So I should have just kept using it all the way up until, I, you know, actually would have been appropriate to use it at the uh, Hubert School because I would have fit right in there. So anyway, uh, Dr. Hans says another great episode with another great co-host. I didn't get this one back then, so it was fun to hear it. A couple of things. First off, Ramona Fraden was a super cute Jaina. And as noted in the prior episode, she looks rather fetching in plain clothes and not the Wonder Twins outfit. Perhaps the gap between her and Wendy is closing. Second, I love seeing Gleek lifted the utility belts off the dynamic duo. I am so bored by today's uber Batman, the guy who, given enough time, could defeat anybody. Seeing him the victim of a pickpocket space monkey? Perfect. But lastly, how can I not know Supergirl appeared on a lunchbox? A new grail item, I suppose. Thanks, as always, for the show. Ange, I never would have, it never would have occurred to me that you didn't know that Supergirl was on the lunchbox because that was such a big item as a kid. So it's one of those things where I was like, I never pointed it out to you because I assumed you, A, had the lunchbox and or at the very least knew about it. So, geez, I'm sorry. I would have told you way earlier if I had known you didn't know about it. But yes, Supergirl on the lunchbox. Go out and get it there, Ange. Got to complete the collection. Martin Gray says, this is what I've been waiting for, an appearance by Logic Glass. Cindy is always great fun, and it was good to have Chris ch- chipping in for his usual bit. Uh, I agree. It was excellent to see the Wonder Twins in training again. I especially liked Batman collecting them in the Batmobile the minute Aquaman was done. The JLA members passing the kids among themselves, never giving them a moment's rest, amuses me somehow. I've not slept since hearing that kangaroos have sticky pouches. I bet the space kangaroos on Paradise Island are a lot slicker. Menagerie Man's new outfit is even worse than the original. Those spikes, that sash, big-time fashion fail. That Super Friends lunchbox featuring no regular members, i.e. flashback from Granaro, is very odd. They're not even drawn in the animated style. Still, it's superheroes. When I was a lad, we didn't have cool lunchboxes, merely anonymous Tupperware. America was such a magical place. Uh, um, sure. Sure, Martin. Yeah, magical. Uh, Sean M. Myers says, when I reread these issues, I always take notes about the things I hope Rob and a super friend discuss. This episode, I only have two things you guys didn't touch upon. I guess I can understand how Aquaman was talking to Xana Jaina underwater because that's his shtick. Shout out to the administrator. But how were Xana Jaina able to do that and seemingly not have to hold their breath? I'm sure it could somehow be explained as an exorian trait, but it still would have been nice to have an official reason for it. On page five, when Aquaman and Superman are discussing their previous run with the Menagerie Man and how the Atom helped crack the case, 
I'm surprised there was no asterisk saying the Menagerie Man was defeated by the Super Friend in issue six. Notes like that were a staple of comics when I was growing up. When reading these stories, I read both the Saturday morning comics hardcover and a specific classic issue, and it wasn't in the original issue. But going back to school shopping each year, we were allowed to pick up uh, pick out a brand new lunchbox. My first was Goober and the Ghost Chasers on one side and Inch High Private Eye on the other. My second was The Muppet Show. And my third was Super Friends. By fourth grade, we were way too sophisticated to bring our lunches in a lunchbox. And there you go, Ito. Another vote for the fourth grade being the big cutoff. Uh, Robert Smith uh, says regarding lunchbox, I had this in the fourth grade. I don't know what became of it because I do have the Hallmark Christmas ornament version complete with tiny thermos that hangs in my tree every December. And then finally, Mark Bader, Maker Wright, uh, with this uh, very upsetting story, everybody strap in. When discussing the Superfence lunchbox, there was a comment about the transition from metal lunchboxes to plastic because of kids using the metal ones as weapons to hit other kids upside the head. Well, I never heard that before. It rings true to me, in large part because, to my shame, I did hit a kid with my lunchbox when I was in the third grade. That's bad enough, of course, but in fact, I hit the wrong kid. What happened was, while waiting outside the school building one morning for the bell that would let us inside, a kid started picking on me. Probably not an uncommon occurrence back then, but truth be told, I don't even remember what it was about. What I do remember was getting so angry about that I simply lashed down and swung my lunchbox at him and hit another kid nearby who I was actually friends with, giving him a bloody nose. Horrified by what I'd done, once we were landing the school building into our classrooms, I immediately went up to the chalkboard and wrote my name on it alongside several check marks. I don't know if this was... Uh, the pattern for other schools, but basically if you did something bad, you got your name put on the board, and if you continued to misbehave, a check mark for each infraction was placed alongside it. I was sent to the principal's office, my mom was called, and I was sent home for the day, the only time I've ever been suspended for any reason, at least. My mom had me write letters of apology, both to the kid I hit and to the kid I'd actually swung at, which I delivered upon returning to school the next morning, and the incident was essentially forgotten, but not by me. I think it's safe to say I was forever changed by that incident. I wouldn't call myself a pacifist exactly, although I'm probably pretty close, nor do I always succeed in keeping my anger in check, but I've definitely sought to avoid such violence ever since. Full disclosure, I don't remember what lunchbox I used that day, or even if it was metal. That would have been in the winter spring 1983, if that helps historians track the evolution of such things. Uh, was it maybe Goober and the Ghost Chasers in its high private eye? Do you remember having a lunchbox with sort of a bloody corner, Mark? Um, that's a remarkable story. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, I never hit a kid with a lunchbox in my memory. I did throw a rock at a kid once and accidentally hit him in the head, and I got in a, a similar trouble as you, Mark. Uh, I don't remember having to put my name on the chalkboard with check, a checkmark name. We were not publicly shamed like that. You probably went to a slightly uh, rougher school than me, I guess, or at least strict. So anyway, thank you for that story. Um, regarding the, the, the metal, the plastic thing, uh, Chris Franklin, as he mentioned on that episode, talked about a book about lunchboxes. I didn't know that such a book existed. And he said that he had one. He was kind enough to send me a copy of said book. And it's all about set, like basically the history of lunchboxes from the forties, fifties through into the eighties, uh, uh, ending with the Rambo lunchbox, which was the last metal lunchbox ever made. And yes, part of the idea was that kids, uh, there were parents were worried that kids had kind of weapons, uh, they could use, wep- use lunchbox as weapons. But the other reason was cost. It simply became cheaper for lunchbox manufacturers to use plastic instead of metal. So as is usual with a lot of these things, it was, uh, it was a, you know, a monetary reason why there was the shift over from metal to plastic. So again, probably there were some stories about kids using them as weapons like yourself, Mark, that helped to bring about the end of the metal lunchboxes. 
Uh, were you involved in getting rid of jarts too? Uh, but uh, again, probably a big chunk of it was also cost. So again, thank you so much for that story. And I hope uh, at least the kid that you accidentally hit uh, forgave you. The kid that was picking on you, screw him. So anyway, uh, that's going to do it for the feedback. Thanks so much. Uh, again, For All Mankind gets a ton of feedback and I really do appreciate it. So much fun to go through. So thanks everybody for the comments. Of course, all the back episodes of the show are on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to For All Mankind on any of the uh, podcatchers of your choice. We're always talking super friends over on Twitter at For All Mankind SF. And then finally, if you want to support Find Water Podcast Network, you go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Chuck Dill, Stanford M. Brown, Gord Tolton, and David S. Gutierrez for their support with Fine Water Podcast Network, and for all mankind specifically. Thanks very much. So that's going to do it for this episode. Big thanks to Martin Gray for stopping by. I always love talking to him. That's going to do it for this episode of For All Mankind. Join us next episode when we will look at Super Friends number 21, Battle Against the Super Fiends. NFW TV Podcast.